Welcome to Saltier Politics. We haven't been here for a while, but I'm excited. I think we're coming in strong with a fantastic interview that I have to say, I took a little backseat to this one because I saw Julie get that sparkle in her eye when she gets into a political conversation. Julie, that I remember on Outnumbered or on, on when you were on Fox. Yeah, so we interviewed Dave Spencer, the host of the Practically Political podcast. Who, who's a Rockefeller um, and is a, a member of the Rockefeller family and a, still a, a Republican, still a Rockefeller Republican, probably the last Rockefeller Republican standing because I don't think there's many Rockefeller Republicans or any other kind of moderate Republicans left in the Republican Party. I thought it was a fascinating discussion and, and, and the kind of discussion that I wish more Democrats and Republicans could have and the kinds of discussions that Emily, I remember having with Republicans in Washington when I first started out that unfortunately just don't exist anymore. They still do at the state level to some extent, but increasingly less so. It's kind of sad. The thing is, we could have a conversation and actually talk about policy and talk about issues that I think move the conversation forward. And again, give good counterpoints, points back and forth. And I thought it was just, it was a joy. Yeah, he was just um, really fascinating. I'm glad. Very glad that we spent, God, I think like an hour talking to him because he was just so interesting about his uncle, great uncle Nelson, and about his uncle Jay Rockefeller, who um, was the senator from West Virginia for a long time, which we will talk about on our podcast coming up next. Joining Julie and I today is Dave Spencer, the host of the Practically Political podcast, A Pragmatic Republican and Rockefeller Air. Dave, so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Dave, tell us what a Rockefeller Republican is these days, because I think the term is so outdated now. It seems like the Republican Party has just completely forgotten about the lessons of the Rockefeller family or even Reagan, for that matter. What do you think about that? Well, yes, I think you're right. I I will acknowledge that we are a severely endangered species (laughs) if there are, you know, if there are any of us left at all. But the original Rockefeller Republican was someone who was socially more liberal. You know, on things like abortion, but fiscally more conservative. And now, of course, party has gone the opposite way, where it's fiscally irresponsible and, you know, socially beyond right. You know, it used to be that when you were, uh, if you opposed abortion, at least you, everyone agreed on an exception for rape and incest, and you don't even get that anymore. So, yeah, I, it's, and also it was, it was really more than beliefs. It was a, the desire to work across the aisle. And um, that was really why uh, a lot of, a lot more things got done. So, yeah, I am, I'm definitely one of the lone warriors, but I believe the only way to save the Republican Party is to burn the village to destroy it. You know, and the problem is that right now there's no political price being paid for what's going on. So until that's until that happens, it's a it's a tough slog. Well, you know, you ask an interesting question, because to me, if you are uh, thinking back to the trajectory of the Republican Party and how it got to this point. It's not Donald Trump. I wouldn't say it's even Ronald Reagan. I think there were symptoms of what was going on, which is effectively that the evangelical right, Ralph Reed and and, and Pat Robertson and, and Jerry Falwell and all these other um, evangelicals, it seems to me really made the Republican Party a reflection of their beliefs on the social component. And so now it became much more, as you said, a socially conservative party fiscal issues kind of be damned, um, which almost <laughs> began once Nelson Rockefeller was no longer in office, right? It began kind of in the mid-70s and, 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 and or late 70s and continued to go on that way. So I don't know if you agree with that. Well, but- I think I, I view it in stages. I think the first stage really started with the election of Reagan. Not that Reagan was anything like that. In fact, he'd be tossed out of today's Republican Party on his derriere. So when I hear people like Ted Cruz quoting him and lionizing him like, like, please. But so the the religious right started to drag the party to the right and make uh, a lot of these social issues relevant. Then you had on the personal side, you had the demonizing, which really began with Newt Gingrich in the 90s. And then as far as people being elected, you had the Tea Party, which came along and really made purity okay, made the not being able to compromise a part. And then, of course, the final stage is really the big lie, which has been internalized by so many Republicans. And that's now what is really scary is that you have people, except for a couple of lone wolves, the Adam Kinzingers, the Liz Cheneys, uh, you have basically people who are, if they're not denying it, they're, uh, if they're not, sorry, if they're not supporting it, they're, they're, they're not denying it. People like Kevin McCarthy, 
And, you know, I think we're, we're, I'm very worried. I think we're headed for a major potential constitutional crisis here. But those are the stages. Do you uh, think that's the Republic- how I see the, the, how the party went off the deep end. Do you think the Republican Party is headed for uh, a reckoning? Because it strikes me that the Republican Party is in a very good position next year to regain control of, of both houses of Congress. Um, it seems to me like there is not just no penalty to be paid for veering way to the right, but actually a reward in some cases in the Republican base for veering to the right uh, and among the electorate. Uh, there are voting restrictions being put into place in places like Texas uh, and other places. Pennsylvania is another good example of where the legislature has veered to the right, where they're trying to put voting restrictions in. And if they win a gubernatorial election next year, they will be able to do that effectively because they'll control both branches of government in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and that seems to me that that would actually help the Republican Party, this, this rise towards authoritarianism because they will be able to then disenfranchise enough Democratic voters or potential Democratic voters to be able to win. So is there really a reckoning that's coming for the Republican Party or are they rolling the dice and and playing for the whole thing the way Mitch McConnell did on the Supreme Court with Merrick Garland? It seems to me like they're just taking extrapolating those lessons and and, and doing that state by state now. Yeah, I agree. Well, as as I mentioned earlier, there's no political price being paid for this. And until there is, it's gonna keep right on happening. And if you if you take a look even at 2020, a lot of people will say, well, they lost. Well, in the minds of people like Kevin McCarthy, Trump was the only problem. They lost the presidency because people didn't like Trump. They, they lost the Senate because Trump interfered in those two races in Georgia. But they gained seats in the House. Uh, they gained they didn't lose state legislatures. I think the Democrats had a real chance of taking over some legislatures, but they didn't because they talked about instead of kitchen table issues that worked in 2018, they talked about defunding the police and Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, which most Americans don't want to hear about. So, yes, I think you're, you're right. I, until there's a price to be paid, they're going to keep on doing it. And the, the strategy is, whether you agree with it or not, that demographically the party is screwed, right? So the only way to stay in power is to rig the system. And that's going to be done by challenging the, legit, the legitimacy of, of elections if they lose, by making it harder for people to vote. And the part that really scares me in some of these states like Georgia allowing state legislatures to overturn elections because all the election rules and all the changes that have, that have come in really so far have been a wash prior to 2020. So I don't really buy when people say, oh, voter suppression has been going on since voter ID in 2005 or whatever. No, 2020 was a record turnout for Biden, a record turnout for black voters. So the party realized, you know, instead of trying to make it, instead of ha- having laws that effect while the vote's being cast, we need to be able to do things after the vote's being cast. And so Georgia is a classic example. There's a very insidious law. It allows them to overrule counties. Well, you would say, hey, there's only four counties and only they only can do four counties. Georgia's got 159 counties, second only to Texas. What's the big deal? Well, if those four counties are Cobb, uh, <laughs> Gwinnett, DeCobb, and Fulton County, they could overturn the election, right? I mean, because in Trump's mind, if you could get rid of Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Detroit, he'd be president, which actually, if you look at the votes, is true. So that's the strategy, and it's um, it's pretty scary, but they realize that's their only chance, so they're going to go all out until they until they pay a price. So that's my question, I guess, Michael. Yeah. Is, is, are they ever going to pay a price? Are you optimistic that the Republican Party will pay a price enough to get back to your family's legacy uh, or even Reagan? I mean, even becoming a, a, a center-right party as opposed to the authoritarian party that that they have become. Even Bush. I mean, if you think about oh yeah, years, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not optimistic based on everything you just said that that's the case. And you're talking about um, Georgia, which is a great example. But you're also, you know, I, I think back to just recently where they had the Maricopa County recount in Arizona. Which, if, if 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 Trump could get rid of Phoenix and and Maricopa County, he would have won Arizona as well. Yeah. And if you think about what they've done, that audit everybody thinks was a joke because it, it showed at the end that there were more votes for Biden than there were when they began. But the reality is, it was actually a brilliant strategy for the people who who oppose Biden and and oppose any kind of free and fair elections. It's given them a roadmap now, right, to be able to look and see where these votes came from, how it's just to me, 
this is a roadmap that was created to help in places like Georgia, to help in places potentially like Pennsylvania, as I said, if a Republican wins the governorship there next year, uh, and so on and so forth. That is, yes, I think you're right. Until there's a political price to be paid, they're going to go on doing this. And the best way to make them play a political price was for the Democrats to understand that they don't have a mandate. And the best way to get power is to win more seats, to be patient, pass things that Americans want, get a couple more seats in the Senate, get a f more seats in the House, then they can actually govern. But the Democrats, being the feckless and incompetent, uh, herding cats, people that they are, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So they, Biden needs a win and they're on the verge of derailing an infrastructure bill that 70% of the country wants because they want this progressive wish list that very few people want. So the best chance was to show Americans that Democrats can govern and can give people what they want because already they're swimming, swimming upstream. Only, only twice in this century has a president gained seats in a midterm, the first midterm, and that was FDR in 34 and George W. after 2002, and that was after a major crisis. So Biden, I think, had a chance, and I wrote a piece about this, that if the Democrats played their cards right, they could gain seats in 22, but the, the Delta variant and a few other things, and there's been a lot of unforced errors. So right now, if you look at Obama's approval ratings, which are the primary criterion of how well the midterms go or don't go, um, it's Biden. It's, it's looking. It's Biden's approval rating. It's looking pretty bad. So right now, I, the, it was always going to be pretty close. Pretty sure that they'd take the House. And right now, if things don't change, they're probably a lot to take the Senate, which, as you say, will allow them to keep going with this. And the worry is that even when the demography changes, that there'll there'll be a built-in advantage that's locked in for enough time where they'll be able to do enough damage and hold on to power long enough. So yeah, I think. It, they're making it harder and harder for them to pay a price, which is the whole point. So I'm not optimistic either right now. What's interesting to me is that the average voter in the United States uh, in these swing areas is, and I don't think Democrats focus on this enough, is a well-qualified man. Yeah, and those, those are the voters that came over from Trump. And as James Carville said, last time, you know, a lot of what the Dems are doing now is going to be a great platform in you know 2050 when this is a majority minority country but you know last time i checked the next election two-thirds of this country is still going to be white so i think a lot of the strategy both in terms of the demography and in terms of a lot of the suburbs the suburban upper income particularly women voters that couldn't stomach voting for trump and i may and also voted for the, the dems in 2018 because they were talking about jobs and the economy and education and the minimum wage and health care and kitchen table issues. That's where there's very little daylight between the Trump voters that went for Obama twice and went for Trump is on kitchen table issues. There is a huge amount. There are light years between them uh, when it comes to issues like defunding the police and open borders and you know, abortion till birth and all this stuff that, that's being pushed. And I, I just think strategically, it's, not, it's really that, poor. That, my question is, is it really being pushed or is it being pushed by a right wing ecosystem, including Fox News, where I worked for a long time? Uh, you know, I don't know that most people, most Democrats, if, if any, very few Democrats would support abortion until birth. I don't think most Democrats, if, if any, you know, there's very few, I guess, that, that talk about defunding the police. Um, it's become something of a, of a orthodoxy among conservative voters that this is what Democrats are communicating. In fact, Democrats are just doing a really, really poor job of communicating what they stand for, but it's certainly not abortion up, up until birth, and it's certainly not defunding the police. At least uh, this Democrat doesn't support that, and most Democrats I know don't support that. My, my, my larger question, though, is if you're a Democrat, I'll, I'll just be devil's advocate on this because mm -hmm. I don't really disagree with you, but if you're a Democrat and you're looking at the Republicans and you're looking how way to the right they went and how there was no like, well, let's temper ourselves. Let's have, you know, let's not give Donald Trump everything he wants. Let's let's really just temper ourselves and and think about the fact that this is not the country that it, that it was 50 years ago. This is a pluralistic society with, you know, um, Republicans never did that. Republicans went for it. I mean, they got every single thing on their wish list, including just banning abortion, even in cases of rape and incest in Texas. Um, and 
yet getting the Supreme Court that they want. Nobody said, well, I don't know. Should we really not do this Merrick Garland move because it really might alienate some people? Republicans just went for it. And I think if you're a progressive Democrat, and I'm, I'm just extrapolating where I think the heads of people like um, Bernie Sanders, for example, are the House Progressive Caucus, is that they're saying, what the hell? The Republicans went for it. We should go for it. And we should try to get what we can now when we have the majority in both houses of Congress and a Democratic president. Why not? Well, the, the yes. Well, first of all, I agree with you that Republicans understand power and how to use it. And they sure Democrats do. Don't. They also understand that the American people really don't care that much about process and they don't care very much about a lot of issues that aren't at the front burner. The classic example of that is I don't think in the history of American politics there's ever been 360 degrees of brazenness in terms of hypocrisy, in terms of shredding precedent, then you then Merrick Garland and uh, you know what happened after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I mean the you know the hypocrisy of these guys was just so galling, and a month later nobody cared. So if nobody cared about that, they're not going to care about any process. And I think also Republicans understand that when they get things through. A lot of it is on narrower stuff where they have total control, but they also don't uh, shoot themselves in the foot in terms of what's important to their base. And so that's why this this thing of holding the first uh, infrastructure bill hostage to a bill that doesn't have the votes in the Senate as we speak right now, because Manchin and Kristen Sinema, those two senators, aren't going to go for it. So what would have happened is that Republicans would have talked to them ahead of time, figured out exactly what they we're going to offer, so let's say it's $2 trillion, they would make noise about their bigger plan and say, okay, we're going to compromise, let's try a $2 trillion plan. That would pass, and then they would pass uh, Biden's plan. That's how the difference in the parties. They, they understand power, they have a strategy. The Democrats, it's like, as I say, it's like herding cats, and this has happened over and over again. So I agree with you. It's just, to me, it's not so much what they want. It's the 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 execution and, and the understanding how to, uh, you know, how to narrow, navigate the waters. I just think the GOP is, is, is much better at that when it comes to Congress. I agree. But, you know, you've now talked about voter suppression. <laughs> you've now mm-hmm. talked about veering to the right to embrace Trumpism for, for political expediency, for, for not for ideological reasons. Reconcile that with Ron DeSantis for me and the fact that you seem to not dislike Ron DeSantis the way that some of us do. Well, my my problem with Ron DeSantis is that, uh, and Greg Abbott is like this too, at the very end, feeding the base comes first. And, And where they both really lost me was on these mandates where you're basically telling, I have a small business. And the fact that some someone, particularly a Republican who always talks about conservatism as letting those decide closer to who's being governed uh, closest on the laws, really? So you're, but you're a bureaucrat who's 300 miles away in Tallahassee, and you're going to tell me that I can't uh, require vaccinations? Or a cruise company? I mean, cruises can't require vaccinations. Give me a break. So that's where that's where he lost me. I think he's done some good stuff on the environment, and I think he's done some some other good things. But what I I really you know I don't care for him personally, but I think. What I admire about him is that he's realized that the heir apparent to Trump is going to be someone who doesn't offend the base, but also actually governs someone who's actually educated and does his homework and, uh, you know, pays attention to what people want. I think DeSantis had done a good job of that, but I think he really stepped in it with this Delta variant thing. I think it's set him back a lot in Republican circles. Pre-Delta variant thing, when I was listening to you were interviewed by Clay Aiken, and you said that yeah. Ron DeSantis was a huge threat to the Democrats, and he's a player that they should be afraid of. Who do you think? Yeah, he was. He's is a, it, at yeah. that point, he was the most likely person to get the 24 nom- nomination. But who do you think is a Democrat's version of this, and do you think we have one? I don't think necessarily. I think there are people like uh, Joe Manchin and and uh, Kristen Sinema who come from moderate from. Uh, Swing states, you know, and Joe Manchin, because my my uncle served for almost 40 years in West Virginia. I know that's doing pretty well. There's, you know, there's not another Democrat on this planet who could hold that Senate seat. So yes, he 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 can be a pain, but he's voted with him every time. And so in terms of, um, you know, the the next the next wing of uh, Democrat who's going to be the you know the the heir apparent. That's one of the problems is that the bench is very thin. 
You know, I don't think that they they there's someone who really can step up right now. And I think there's also been a problem with Kamala Harris. I think someone like if Amy Klobuchar were vice president, I think she'd be a much better heir apparent. But I think Kamala Harris has proved herself to not be very deft. And uh, I just don't think that she's that a very skilled politician. But it's really hard to not have her the heir apparent. So I think that because I don't see Biden running again. I don't know what you folks think, but I don't see. I think he's going to have trouble finishing this term. I don't see how he can run for. Oh, I think he runs. I think if his health is fine, he runs again. I think the problem for Kamala Harris is that they've given her every horrible job. I mean, they've given her every no win job on earth. Right. But is that a coincidence? Well, you know, it may not be a coincidence. You know, the only thing I would say to Kamala Harris, uh, if I were to talk to her, is to why don't you ask for something that can give you a win and not just be the person that's being sent down to the border. Ultimately, I think the problem for Democrats has always been, and I forgot, I think Bill Clinton used this great line, maybe it's not his, where he said Republican Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Yes. And we Democrats, look, if I, if I thought about who the bench, I remember being in college in 1991, thinking if Mario Cuomo doesn't run, George Bush gets reelected. Now, this is at the very end of, this is late 91. Bush's numbers were starting to soften a little bit, I guess, but not much because of the Iraq War, the first Gulf War. I just remember when, when Cuomo made that decision on the tarmac not to get on that plane to New Hampshire and basically pulled out of the race. I remember thinking, oh, my God, that's it. We're never going to have anybody who are these people who, you know, who's this lame governor from from Arkansas? Uh, Paul Songus is lame. Everybody's lame. You know, like you kind of started thinking, going through the list, and then lo and behold, you know, Bill Clinton pulled it out. Uh, If somebody had told me back in 2007 that an African American guy named Barack Hussein Obama, who was a first-term senator from Illinois, was ever going to be successful, I would have laughed. In fact, I supported Hillary Clinton in that primary, not necessarily because I supported her policies more than his, but because I just thought she was the more electable candidate. I was completely wrong about that. Um, I didn't realize back then, I guess what I realize now, which is there'll be 100 black men who will get elected before one woman ever gets elected in this country because the misogyny is so much worse than anything else. So Hillary's her own worst enemy. Hillary may have been her own worst enemy, but I'll tell you something. If you saw the way women were treated, Amy Klobuchar and and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and every other woman who ran, you know, uh, it's it's, there. There is a built in animosity that we have towards women. And and that includes women towards other women, by the way. It's not just a, a problem of men. But um. And Sarah Palin, too. I mean, Sarah Palin, for all her problems, I think treated got treated worse as a woman than she would have been if she were a man because Dan Quayle was no yeah, more. That's true. You know, Dan, Dan Quayle was no more incompetent or confident than she was. Um, so uh, the only thing I'd say to you about that is, you know, we'll find somebody. And I don't know necessarily that Democrats never have developed a strong bench. What Democrats always developed was that one guy that they fall in love with and suddenly becomes like the chosen. The way, look, look at the Republican bench in 2012. I mean, look at the great bench they had. They had, I mean, they had two senators, I could think off the top of my head, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, whatever you think of them, they were sitting senators. We had Jeb Bush, a, a two or three term governor of, of Florida and a, and a member of the Bush family. Uh, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, who was incredibly popular before Bridgegate and before he decided to throw his arms around Obama during Hurricane Sandy. So you had an incredible bench. And out of this incredible bench comes this huckster uh, reality show host who is anathema to everything Republicans have always said they stood for, fiscal responsibility, um, even the social aspects of, of, you know, of things, a thrice married man who talked about his sex life and, and cheated on his wives very openly in the New York tabloids. I mean, Donald Trump was everything the Republicans stood against. And all I could think is you have people like Marco Rubio or Ted, you have people like Ted Cruz, who from the day they probably came out of the womb, started grooming themselves to run for president and behaved accordingly to what they thought the Republican base wanted. And here comes a guy like Donald Trump who blows all of that up and turns it on its head and wins and probably wins the primary so and, and the election. So I guess Democrats probably have the same thing, right? There'll be another somebody, whether it's Kamala Harris or it's going to be somebody else. By the way, Kamala Harris's numbers, last poll I saw, were better than Biden's, which tells you something. 
Yeah. Well, no, it's true. And look, the same thing is true with Jimmy Carter, right? I mean, he came out of nowhere. So yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's why it's always good. If you're going to run, run, because the one thing that's predictable about presidential primaries is that they're unpredictable. So every forecast of who the front runner was going to be, you go back, has been wrong. And every person that's got in early and really put their pedal to the metal has has benefited. So um, I, I think that there there probably will be someone who who comes out. You know, it's a little harder now because, uh, you know, when you look at uh, Bill Clinton and uh, certainly um, uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, they came from s- southern states when the southern when the South was a lot more blue. So they were. You know, they were different types of, of, of Democrats. But every every you know, every president has had something that's allowed them to peel votes from the other side. I think it's one of the most unappreciated qualities. And I think with with Obama, it was, you know, we were one nation. We're not red or blue. We're one nation with Clinton. He was the new Democrat who, um, you know, George W. Bush, he was compassionate conservatism, all this stuff. And I think Trump's on uh, what. I think the most underrated quality that got him with the election was, first of all, the dynamics were going in his favor. And only twice in history has somebody won a so-called third term. In other words, someone's been reelected and then someone from the same party has won. Gore should have done it, but he ran the worst campaign in history. But you had George H.W. Bush after Reagan, and then you have to go all the way back to Martin Van Buren after Andrew Jackson. And coincidentally, each of them were one, only one-term presidents, as was Trump. But so it's very hard to win a so-called third term. Plus, it was a was a it was a, it was a, a, a change election. And she was there was a lot of things going against it. But Trump's underrated quality was that he was he was considered the most moderate GOP candidate since Eisenhower. Now, of course, he didn't govern that way. But the fact that he'd been a Democrat only recently, a lot of people thought, OK, this guy's more moderate than a lot of guys. Plus, he's, he's going to blow up the system. Plus, I hate Hillary Clinton. And, you know, it all came together with a perfect storm. But my favorite stat, and I always say this, is when you talk about the Democrats being the perfect, being the enemy of the good, it's like if my my guy or my way doesn't go, then yeah. we all go down. In Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the three states that won the election, there were two to three times as many voters as Trump's margin of victory who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary, who voted for Trump in the general. In Pennsylvania, Trump won by 44,000 votes. Over 100,000 Bernie primary voters voted for him in the general. My reaction is, what? So next time you see a Bernie bro in Pennsylvania, thank him for handing Trump the election. Well, it's funny that you say this. I'm actually doing this show from Pennsylvania. Okay. <laughs> and uh, well, That'll I, be a good stat. Yeah, I can tell you it's interesting. Where I am, and I live in New York, but, I, but I'm in Pennsylvania this weekend, um, where I am, is actually Northampton County, which is the swingiest county in Pennsylvania, which is arguably the swingiest state in the nation. And uh, the town where I am, Biden won, but won by a minuscule, minuscule per, you know, like number. Uh-huh. And, and what's so interesting about that is that um, everywhere I went and still go whenever I'm here, you still see the Trump flags everywhere. Like, you know, everywhere. People still people haven't taken them down. And what that says to me is this is not so much about an election. It's a lifestyle to these people. Right. A lot of these people. Um, there's a guy, whenever we're here, uh, we always joke, who, who literally has a bike um, that he's wrapped up in Trump flags. He wears a Trump flag and a Trump shirt, and he's got a Trump flag on his little bike like a streamer. Uh, he's got a baby in the back, the back of the bike, and like a baby kind of, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but basically a place to put his baby. The baby's dressed in Trump clothes. And if you're out to lunch in this town, you'll see him biking up and down and up and down the street, almost as a walking billboard for no reason, not because he's getting exercise. I think just to advertise, and he'll, by the way, he'll blare patriotic music as he's doing this. Um, So it's it's interesting because it really is a a lifestyle to to people, I think, in ways that nothing else ever has been. I mean, I think about even Reagan, in the 80s, as much as people loved Ronald Reagan, I don't remember anybody ever keeping Reagan signs up under a long past election day. Well, uh, it's, it, let's face it, it's a cult. It I is. I know people, when when those of us who have been never Trumpers started saying that, how many years ago people thought we were being hyperbolic, but now I think pretty much everyone agrees. Because, and you know, that frauded, as they call it in Arizona, was a perfect example of how in most cases people would say, okay, we did, we did it your way. 
it's yeah. settled, right? No, I mean, they, it, it was, it wasn't even acknowledged. It, it's just, it's as you say, it's part of the plan that's being formulated to learn from the mistakes of 2020, so they'll be over, able to overturn uh, future elections. But going back to, you know, people living and breathing in Trump, and he, he can never do anything wrong. Uh, I, you know, that that's something that 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 you're seeing more and more, and I think that so many people. And those of us who study politics get it, but so many people keep saying, God, you know, how can those people in those states vote for Republican? No one's been more inimical in terms of economic policy. And that's true. But, you know, the bottom line is, Julie, people don't people used to vote solely with their pocketbooks. They don't do that anymore. They vote on cultural issues, racial issues, social issues. And and, you know, I understand I spent time in a lot of these states. I understand why the hillbilly elegy crowd supported Trump. You know, they're for them the American dream is dead. They were discarded oh, by Democrats. They're in economically hollowed out areas that have been riddled by addiction. And this guy came along. He's a charlatan. He's he's a you know he's a con man and they he pretended to care and they and they and they bought it. I get it. And what I think the problem I, I remember being on Fox the day after the election. Uh, on a show called Outnumbered that I used to co-host. Um, oh, that would have been fascinating. And uh, so I remember having saying this as, as a Democrat, obviously, who was shocked that Trump won. I think all of us were a little shell-shocked both, on both sides of the aisle. Some people really believed he was going to win, but they were delusional about Romney winning, too, in 2012. You know, I think the Democratic Party has a perception problem of um, being condescending to people like this. The Democratic Party has become so urbanized in the sense that that's where Democrats are concentrated, right? Um, uh-huh. If you're a white Democrat, you're, uh, chances are you're, you're an urban Democrat or at least a suburban Democrat. And I think there's a perception that Democrats look down on people who are not college educated, who look down on people who are not necessarily financially successful. Um, I think there's a huge fear. You talked about the hillbilly elegy crowd, but there's a huge fear um, and it's interesting because the author of Hillbilly Elegy, uh, who went to Yale, um, is now running. Oh my God! What are you running, off the now running for is now running for Senate in Ohio, and ironically enough, is exploiting them, knowing full well what he's doing. Exactly what I'm about to say, but I think there's a there's a a, a sense the demographic changes that are plaguing this country in their mind, which are of course not plaguing their country, this country in my mind, um, are coming for them that people who are undocumented immigrants are suddenly going to take their jobs, even though that's not true, or somehow take their spot uh, somewhere in life, which is not true. And and not just that, but African-Americans and and women. And, you know, they want to go back to the good old days, which I guess were the 1950s in their mind or whatever it was, where you had stability, where if you went to work at a factory the day you graduated high school, you retired from that factory at the age of 65. And and you had security and you had sense of of, of of feeling like you were getting up and having a purpose every day to go to work and, and, and collect your paycheck and support your family and still have time and money to take vacations. And, and all of that is gone. And I get it. I completely get it. The fact that the Republican Party, of course, is mouthing these platitudes in my mind while voting specifically to provide tax breaks to the very people who exploit these guys. Oh, of course. People is interesting to me, which I guess raises the question for me. You live in the Bay Area, right? You're south of San yes. Francisco. I'm born and raised in Manhattan, but I'm yeah. I've been a California boy for quite a while. Okay, um, so you're by Silicon Valley, or somewhere down by Monterey? Uh, or- yeah, I'm in a place called Hillsboro. I'm about okay. third um, way between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Got it. So you're in an area that's kind of descriptive of what I'm talking about, where a lot of Democrats live. Um, yeah, and uh, you. Obviously, you're still a re- you're still a registered Republican, right, in California? I am. Yeah. So tell me, so tell me why. And I don't I don't mean that as a gotcha question. You now have pretty much outlined what you think the Republican Party has become. In California, the Republican Party has, to me, has been hijacked by the same element that we talked about nationally because you had a couple of good guys in your mind. You had a couple of I don't know if they were Rockefeller Republicans per se, but a couple of fiscally conservative, socially liberal guys running in the. Kevin in the- yeah, this recall election. And yeah. yet though they were all by the wayside. And Larry Elder, who's like Trump on steroids, <laughs> was, the, was the face of the Republican Party in California. So why would you still is it is it a sense of just 
your family's been Republican for so long, it's what you know, and it's just, it's hard for you to reconcile to becoming something else or not being a Republican. Why are you still a Republican? Well, I, there's really, part of it is I, I, I have a, a real sense of loyalty and I'm going to keep espousing what, what needs to happen. And I hope it, that people will listen, but part of it is there's really not uh, any other place for, for me to go too. I think it's nice to be registered to a party. I, being an independent is, doesn't really stand for much. And, uh, you know, if this were Bill Clinton's Democratic Party, then I, I might think about it. But the party, though, it's not nearly as bad as the Republicans. And and the, the, and it's more it's not it's policy. It's not ethics. It's not authoritarianism. It's not all this other stuff. But party's gone gone so far to the left. But I just want to comment on something that you said before, and that is about how you're talking about the strategy they have. And it's all part of it. It's a bigger, bigger strategy is, you know, you keep talking about all these crises, right? There's a crisis on the border. There's an economic crisis. There's an inflation crisis. There's this crisis. Because basically a classic authoritarian strategy is you see you foment chaos, chaos. So people are willing to sacrifice freedoms and rights to get order. And that's that's the big part of the strategy. And, and if you look at so much of what's being done, that's it. And it's a very nefarious, uh, scary strategy. But I, I just go back to what I've said before. I've, you know, I don't believe it. We, we have a two party system. Third parties don't work. The two party system served us very well for a long, long time. So I think that uh, dealing with things like dark money, I think dealing with things like trying to address gerrymandering, more and more states are starting to have independent redistricting, which helps. I think that will continue to to catch on. But the Democrats have to be a viable alternative. And that's what worries me is that what you're seeing right now is I know some swing voters that are starting to say, you know what, this is not what I consider a viable alternative. And the scariest stat you're seeing is that in some polls now, Trump is starting to poll better than Biden. Well, so to, to that point, I guess if you're a Republican who's still a Republican, mm -hmm. for whatever reason you're a Republican, um, your reasons are obviously very valid. Um, do you even think about voting for a Democrat ever? Or do you just say, I'm going to stay home? I mean, in fact, I, the last, uh, to be honest with you, the last Republican that I voted for in the presidential election was um, George H.W. Bush. Um, I, because I, I think if Mitt Romney had ran as who he was, I would have considered supporting him. Um, if George, but if, uh, George W. Bush had actually, uh, you know, tried to be more responsible in a lot of ways, I might've considered supporting him, but, um, you know, unfortunately I don't think there, there really been any, any great GOP candidates recently. So a lot of times I, it was more the lesser of evils. And I think that's another thing people have to realize is that Every time there's a presidential election, it's more like the scenario where you go to a dinner, right? And they're you really want beef and they're serving chicken and fish. And if you hassle the waiter enough, maybe you can get a vegetarian entree. So it's not who do I like more, it's who do I dislike less. And couple with that, that sadly, I think more people in this country are now voting to say F you than they are to say thank you. And yeah. So you put it. You, you put in those two dynamics, and that's why someone like Trump can can get elected because it's always the lesser of evils, and it's who's going to buck the system more, and who's going to, you know, show Washington what they need to see, and 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 all this stuff. And of course, that never ends up happening because people get in there. And I think Trump's major one of the reasons he lost. I think even despite the economy, he still could have been reelected. If it weren't for his erratic behavior and the fact that he ran as a populist, but he governed pretty much as a plutocrat. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I mean, what's it, it's just interesting to me because um, I, I share the same sense. Emily, I don't know if you have ever had this happen to you, but uh, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. You know, all the years that I lived in New York and still live in New York, never voted for Andrew Cuomo. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm a Democrat. And I never voted for him uh, in the primaries the first time around. I never voted for him in the general election. And uh, for reasons that are apparent now, um, but I had serious problems with him going back, you know, to when he first ran. Um, what, what's interesting to me is, though, you're right. It became a thing of I don't really 
uh, it's not that I support the policies. And by the way, his policies were very much aligned with mine in many cases, but this, this is more of a personal thing for me. But um, the question for, for me, I guess, much like for you is, do we ever get to the point where we start voting for people based on who we love and not on who we hate? And I think that's, that's that. Well, the Trump people certainly, I should, I should take that back. The Trump people definitely vote. And I, and I should say I voted for Joe Biden because I've known Joe Biden, Joe Biden a long time and I actually really, really like him. Um, but the Trump people, to me, vote for Donald Trump because they truly love Donald Trump. They truly, truly love Donald Trump. And you went back to the Bernie bro people in Pennsylvania, why they voted for Trump. It's because they truly hate Hillary Clinton. She was the anti She needed to be erased because in her mind, and I'll quote Susan Sarandon here, paraphrase her, if we only get rid of the Hillary Clintons of the world, then the Bernie wing will be ascendant, which is a completely naive yes. misunderstanding of life. Mm-hmm. But on the Republican side, tell me if you disagree with this, it seems to have worked, right? If only we get rid of George Bush and the uh, Jeb Bush, um, the, the, the populists will be ascendant. And they happen. I mean, they happen. Look at Ron DeSantis. Great example. I mean, Ron DeSantis's background is entirely, as is Donald Trump's, by the way. Entirely. Or Josh Hawley. Or Josh Hawley. I mean, Jeez. yeah. I mean, these guys are not. They're it's it's not. They're not hillbilly elegy. I mean, I'll take Vance. I mean, he he actually I guess came from that background before yeah. going to Yale. Although I guess that kind of doesn't make him that much of a hillbilly either in his own mind. These like this actually all began now that I think about it when Romney ran against Obama and in one of the debates and I almost fell off my chair. Um, watching this, Romney slammed Obama for having uh, gone to Harvard Law School. Like, you yeah. don't get these Harvard Law School values. I'm thinking, you're Mitt Romney. Yeah. You went to law school and Harvard Business School. And also, <laughs> you're Mitt Romney. He ran being cap like, like Mitt Romney could not be more establishment, could not be more of that guy. And, and listen, this is the wing of the party that you come from. This is the family, your family legacy. I mean, you're a rock. You yeah. tell me, was your upbringing Forget the fact that you're a Rockefeller, but it seems to me I came, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not a Rockefeller. I did not grow up with a lot of money at all, but my parents would have sold their house and probably did sell their house to make sure that I, if I wanted to go to Harvard Law School, that I would have gone to Harvard Law School. That was something to attain. That was something to aspire to. When did that stop being something to aspire to? When did being educated, I'm not talking about Harvard specifically, but when did getting a really good education stop being something that we aspire to in the Republican Party? Well, it, it's very, it's it's absolutely congruous with the rise of populism, you know, because you look back, populism, a big tenet of it is a rejection of the elites. You know, that's why Trump had such a problem with COVID, because if you support uh, what the scientists say, if you support wearing masks, if you're if you want people to get vaccinated, that's supporting scientists and scientists are elitists. And and that's the same thing, even. And if you look at people in the Trump administration, by the way, for the record, there's plenty of people that went to Ivy League schools, including, including you know, whether or not he got in there legitimately, including the former president himself. So there's, uh, as usual, there's uh, a, a, a surfeit of hypocrisy here. But but um, that that that's really it. That's when to answer your question, that's when Harvard became evil. That's when medical science became evil. It's with it's with populism and populism, by the way. It's it's all in inequality, right? That's that's what breeds populism, and and you look at it all over. You look at Marine Le Pen in France. You look at Brazil. I mean, Bolsonaro. Oh my God! I never thought anyone could make Trump look good, and all these guys. It's the same thing. It's it's inequality that 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 fosters this resentment of people that the system is leaving behind, and they a lot of people. No one begrudges wealth in this country, but people do begrudge that the system is rigged. And frankly, it is in a lot of ways. Well, let me, it is rigged. I agree with that. But let me challenge you on that because okay. Donald Trump certainly played up his Wharton, which he, of course, did not go to Wharton <laughs> business school, but be that as it may, okay, he still went to Penn. He still did programs at Wharton. Um, but let me challenge you on that because Trump did play up the fact that he did, you know, I went to one of the best schools in the country and, and Ivanka went to one of the best schools in the country and my son's all, you know, whatever. If you talked about his SATs and he go ballistic. I, you know, I had perfect scores and I had perfect this and I had perfect that academically. So he certainly, on the one hand, and his base just kind of let that go. Like, if you're going to say that these elites don't get it, 
how does somebody like Donald Trump, who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and uh, well, again, that that is the that, that is the thing about Trump, which even compared to Bill Clinton, who was great at taking shots and keep company. You, know, you think about the Jennifer Flowers story and all this stuff, and it was forced to derail derail his his pregnancy. He literally uh, was was uh, someone that none of this stuff has stuck with, right? It's it, nothing nothing has uh, stuck with him at all. You know, it's 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 he's gotten away with so much stuff, and so. You know, if you look at a lot of other people that have been with them, that rule does apply to them. But none of these rules apply to Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, um, that's what's so weird to me. And then I look at your state and I wonder, what's the future for the Republican Party in California? I mean, is it is it even worth being a Republican in California or is it worth if you want to move the Democratic Party more to the center and, and make it more of a Bill Clinton party, as you claim? Uh, you would have supported Clinton if you were running today, or you'd become a Democrat. Is it worth trying to influence the party in the, you know, the, the largest Democratic Union um, to do that? Well, California has really has become a, a, a obviously a one-party state, but I think a lot of people, and obviously myself included, are getting sick of uh, a lot of the inefficiencies here. And um, I think that if uh, if someone talks about what what good governance is is about that might have an effect. I also think this recall did a couple of good things. I think that yeah, it might be a wake up call to the party. And I think if Gavin Newsom actually some of the stuff that he's trying to do in terms of climate and housing has actually been good. His main problem is his demeanor and his his unforced errors and the fact that he's he's like that guy you meet at a party that's always looking past you for the next person to meet. Yep. You know, he's always got his eye on higher office. And so maybe you might realize that after this, he, he's not going to be president and he's got five years left. I think he'll get reelected easily, uh, just the way Scott Walker did after his recall. Um, and uh, and I think he can be he can be a great governor. You know, he can solve the water crisis we have here, which is not a it's not a water shortage. It's an, it's an allocation crisis. And he can do he can do a lot of good things and, and have a, a huge legacy. So. Um, but to answer your question, it's, it's very, very tough, you know, in the way that the things have been set up, uh, it's very tough. And it's the same thing in a lot of these in these uh, red states. It's very hard for the Democrats to to gain. But tides change. You know, don't forget, 10 years ago, North Dakota had two Democratic senators. So, yep. you know, things 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 can change. I, I think this, this goes in waves. And the good news for the Dems is that white working class men, which are Trump's number one demographic group are the fastest shrinking one in the country. And I, if I were a Democratic president, I would focus on bringing that, that, those parts of the country back economically, because that's what's going to turn things around uh, more, more, more than anything. Let me just ask you a quick question. Do you think that's possible? Or do you think some of those places that have been um, eviscerated have just become so programmed to for whatever reason, support Trump and believe in Trump and, and watch a lot of conservative TV news to the exclusion of everything else, that even if you bring jobs to them, like Obama, look, <laughs> Obama to some extent saved the auto industry um, during the fiscal crisis in the late aughts, and Michigan didn't give him much credit for that, or Democrats much credit for that down the road um, during the Trump-Hillary race. So I, I wonder, I wonder if that's even something that that whether reason actually resonates, whether policy is something that still matters or whether it's all rhetoric and performative art. Right. Well, I think I think I think in the end, policy does matter. And I think that's where, again, if the Democrats focus on the kitchen table issues where there is very little daylight between Trump voters and them. And you can you know, that's one of the great things about infrastructure is that it spreads the wealth. You know, it brings jobs to a lot of these parts of the country that haven't really seen a lot of economic activity. And you can set up uh, economic opportunity zones, just as I think you should in, in cities, to help these poor communities get, get better jobs and have more economic opportunities. So I think in the end, policy does matter. Um, and, I, and I think that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the best shot. And again, you know, cults, don't, cults never outlast their leaders. And I still think that 
by the time we get to 2024, Trump's going to have a lot more legal baggage. And I think that he's going to his, his health is, is also going to be slipping. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of things that will make it harder for him to run. My hope is that he sucks all the oxygen and all the money up for as long as possible. And at the very end, someone else has to run, but they're going to be handicapped because they're not going to have the head start or the resources to run their best possible campaign. I like that note. And now to get to the final part of our podcast, Two Truths and a Lie. Dave, if you would go. Uh, Julie, as I told you earlier, always beats I know. I hear Julie and, is really good at this. So yeah. I'm doing a little practice to try to come up with something. Uh, I think I fooled four out of five people, Julie. So let's see how good you, you know are. What? Okay? What? One person did fool me in the whole history of this podcast and the years we've been doing this. One person, I forgot who it was, did fool me. So we'll see if you're the second. All it's right. been a long time. Since Here we go. Go for it. Drum roll, please. When I was a okay. kid, when I was a kid and he was governor, my great uncle Nelson once asked me to pay for something. Number okay. two. Keep going. I have been to Burning Man multiple times. Number three, during my extensive travels, I studied Cantonese. Oh. Um, hmm. I'm going to say uh, number one is probably true for what I know about Nelson Rockefeller. But maybe I'm, hmm. I'm going to say you've been to Burning Man once, but not multiple times. I would say number two is the lie. Emily? I was going to say that, too. I'm like, you've been to Burning Man once, and we're probably over it quickly, and then we're like, never again. <laughs> Envelope, please. Survey said, number three, I've actually been to Burning Man five times. You're what? right about Uncle Nelson. What? That you're, you're, I'm very impressed with your history. He was an infamous <laughs> skin flint. My he mom was. said he was trying to teach me something, but, that to you, but is, he, he, he never had, had any cash on him. <laughs> And I actually uh, did not study Cantonese, even though I lived in Hong Kong for a summer, which oh, you may have seen. So I thought that uh, <laughs> there you Congratulations. go. The second person that stumped us. Um, let me. I didn't want to say this about your uncle, but he was kind of notorious. I know oh that. Oh my God. Do you, think, do you think he didn't care? Well, first of all, let's not forget that's how wealthy people get wealthy. They actually don't pay for anything. But I'll just say that famous quote for Nelson, because he was always, you know, saying the family wasn't that way. So someone finally said, Governor Rockefeller, you come with this incredible wealthy family. How much money do you need? Just a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you this about, um, yeah. about your family and about uh, Nelson Rockefeller. So what do you think he would make? Since he's the guy that really coined the Nelson Rockefeller, he didn't coin it, but that's what people were talking about. Um, well, he was the one. If you look at tapes from him in the 1964 Republican convention, yeah. talking about clairvoyant, sure. was worrying sure. about sure. how the party yep. was becoming too extreme. So, but he was someone, you know, he was one of those great politicians like Bill Clinton or Lyndon Johnson that, you know, and decidedly not like Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. That, it, but, but that it didn't matter whether you were the coal miner from Appalachia or you had the PhD from MIT, he was right there with you. He, he, you know, he met like you were the most important person in the world. He could talk about anything. And so I think that he would have been someone who would have realized uh, the, the, the trends. And in fact, you know, the bottom line was if it hadn't been for the fact that he left his wife in 1962 to marry happy, which people couldn't tolerate that. that was, I think he probably would have been president. Do you think that, Uncle Jay was elected in West Virginia in this environment? Uh, yes, I think he, he he's like a Joe Manchin in the sense that yeah. uh, I think he would have run he would have run one more time if he hadn't had some health issues. Uh, and also he was somebody who always cared about policy. And so I think it, yeah. he was he, he was just having particularly after the Tea Party came in, you know, those last uh, five years of his term, he said were the worst years he said he spent in politics because he just saw everything decaying. He saw you know, people not caring, not doing their homework, not realizing that, you know, policy matters, that it was all about purity. And so I think that, but, um, uh, you know, I think he would, I think in West Virginia, he would have been fine because again, he was someone who, he went and visited all the counties. He really, you know, he was like, you know, he was like a, um, 
uh, a great example is Sharon Brown in Ohio. He's another one of those guys. You know, every time yeah. the state gets more red, he keeps winning by a higher margin. So it, it is, I love. It, yeah, it is. It is. It is possible. Again, you just have to pay attention to the things that voters care about. Well, let me say something about him on a personal level, because um, yeah. I did I did overlap with him when I worked in the Senate. Um, God, 20 years ago now, if not longer. But uh, he I was very close. I did not work in the Senate for Senator Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey, but I was very close personally to Frank Lautenberg. Um, Senator uh-huh. And your uncle was just astoundingly great with him and amazing to him, especially towards the end of his life. Um, and, and back when he needed a little extra help in the Senate, um, mm-hmm. of his life and, and he really stepped up in ways that are just remarkable and I've never forgotten it. And I know that I'm sure the Lattenberg family has not forgotten it either. So on behalf of that, I don't want to speak for them, but on behalf of myself, I want to thank you for that. <laughs> thank him for that. He was an incredible man and a very kind man. Um, well, yeah, people- you know, humility is something that was drilled into our heads, you know, humility and never, ever, ever be entitled. And that's what you see with so many young people these days, these days that just drive, drives me crazy. I mean, granted, with the, all the physical challenges I've been through, the, you know, I, I just appreciate everything. I would never come across, you know, never be entitled. But Jay was, you know, Jay, I remember he said that when he first got to the Senate, he became friends with John McCain because he admired so yeah. much of what he'd been through. You know, he's like, I've never, my life has been the opposite of what you've been through. You know, and they, yeah. and they and they became fast friends and were friends throughout his entire career there, just because of and that. Let me, but but I also say this about you saying that, and about as you said about Jay Rockefeller and and your family. I mean, compare that to what you see with kids growing up, my generation, and not just my generation, younger kids of of, of very wealthy, prominent family. Yeah. Look at the look at the Trump kids. Yeah. I mean, I hate this, but who's more entitled than Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner? Waltzing? Oh, Jared is, if you talk about white privilege. And yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, just waltzing into the White House and just assuming they're going to co-run the government because of, you know, they, they were in the lucky sperm club. And um, I, it's interesting. And, and not just that, I could, you know, name certain other children of, of senators who, who behave that way. So um, I think it's lovely <laughs> that that you grew up with that mantra and that your family did considering where you come from. And I, I, I really wish that was still the case with a lot of people who have famous last names like yours. I, I just don't see that happening as much. Well, yeah, well, sadly it's not. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, this has been, been so much fun. I, uh, yes, thank great, you. Great, great, great chatting with you. Talking to you. So really appreciate it. Yeah, any, any time. Julie, that was an incredible interview. And again, the sparkle in your eye, I think everybody who just listened to that is going to really get something out of that and have a great conversation about it. Yeah. So there was a sparkle in my eye. It is obscured by these ridiculous $1.50 cheater frames that I get at like Walgreens or Dwayne Reed or somewhere. So great discussion. And we will be sure to have him back. What's been going on with you? You know, I've not caught up in a long time. I know. Well, I recently, I did a little mini dry try Athlon. I won that. Wait, Um, what? Back up. Yeah, it's part of this. Orange Theory Fitness thing, but they have this dry try which you sign up for, and it's 2,000 meter row, a 5k run, and um, 300 reps on floor exercises. And I, I won the little mini studio thing, so that was really cool. Oh my god! Well, I know somebody who's going to be really interested in that. That's amazing. And then I ran a 10 miler last weekend. Just to, I'm helping a tra- friend train just for fun. Yeah, well, she's training for a marathon, and she's in one another friend. Her wife was like, I can't run. Do you want to run it with her? Like with two days notice. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I I walk from my house to my car. That's part of my driveway today. That's <laughs> but <laughs> I feel very accomplished. No. What about, well, you've been just like changing the landscape and empowering women. So tell me about how are you doing? Cause that's- oh my God. I've been, yeah. Well, thank you. I've been spending all my time on Lift Our Voices stuff, really just doing incredible stuff, still trying to raise money for our mission fundraising is the toughest part of what for me at least of of doing this because it's just something that i don't particularly love doing i don't love asking people for money but obviously whenever you are running a nonprofit, you need money to do that so have been doing that went down to dc for a few meetings last week uh on behalf of lift our voices and i had not been to washington in a long time i think since before COVID hit uh 
and certainly since uh, Donald Trump was president, it was nice. I mean, it was a nice in and out. You know what I did see when I was down in D.C.? So I was I had a meeting. I had a lunch meeting uh, at the Willard Hotel, which is right by the White House, uh, just across from the from the National Mall. And then I had about an, 45 minutes or so to kill. So I decided to walk over to the mall because it's just a kind of thing I don't ever do when I go to D.C. And I went by the Washington Monument where they have this covid memorial set up. And these little white flags that are very tiny white flags that they have set up for every that they've planted on the lawn by the Washington Monument for every person who's died of COVID in this country. And it was just a breathtaking, you know, sometimes you see these memorials and you're like, "Eh, whatever, this is hokey. It was just breathtaking. It was just a beautiful, amazing sea of white. Um, with the Washington Monument, which obviously is also white and very tall, um, kind of rising up from 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 this little, not little, this very vast field of white flags, little white flags, really just amazing, just an amazing, amazing visual. And so I posted it on Twitter saying just exactly what it is. This is a monument to, you know, memorial to, to the people who died in the wealthiest country in the world. Because, of course, as the wealthiest country in the world, we have the healthcare system or should have the healthcare system to deal with this. Um, and for a variety of reasons, our hospitals are overwhelmed and whatever, because people are <laughs> not taking a vaccine right. that they should be taking for whatever reasons they're not doing it. But I didn't get into all of that. I just said this is this is a memorial to, to, to all the people who died in the wealthiest country in the world. The crazy vitriol I got back from people on Twitter was just really striking to me just shows how everything is so partisan now i wasn't making a political statement i wasn't making a value judgment it was a it's a fact it's a fact there and is, you were honoring the the people yeah. who were being memorialized yeah there are six hundred thousand and more white flags planted on the national mall in honor of the people who died i'm not making a value judgment about their death i'm just saying they're dead Sadly, I mean, this is a and, you know, if I had if I had gone down a couple of yards to the, to the Vietnam Memorial, which is also right there and tweeted that out, would I have gotten this craziness about why are you getting, you know, political about the Vietnam Memorial and there are people like, no, I wouldn't have. But for some reason, COVID has just become polit- the very fact that people are dead. Somehow people take as a political statement. There are memorials all yeah. over the place. No, I remember when you went to France, you posted about like the memorial oh, there, I think, for World War II, and you didn't get that vitriol. Like, it's, you know? like it's crazy. Like, yeah. okay, I would have gone down to the Jefferson Memorial. Would I have gotten crazy vitriol about a memorial about, you know, his, his treatment of, of, of enslaved people on his on his properties? No, I wouldn't have. I mean, I don't think I would have. It's just a, it's just a visual of a memorial. Or the Lincoln Memorial, would I have gotten this whole, you know, the Lincoln Memorial, how dare you talk about, you know, a man who defeated the Confederacy? Like, what? That right. That's not political. Tweeting that out is not political. Washington, you know, are we, the Washington Memorial is not political. <laughs> Even though he he didn't do some great things to to, to slaves and his people who were enslaved and his, uh, Mount Vernon. I mean, so on and so forth. Like, but COVID is just something that people go crazy about. And it just kind of depressed me because I'm like, how are we ever going to get through this thing if the mere fact that I'm tweeting out a picture of, of blacks <laughs> in the National Mall in commemoration of dead people from a pandemic is something that everybody goes ballistic about. It was just, I don't know. It's depressing. The whole thing is depressing. Having said that, um, Lift Our Voices is not depressing um, because we are working hard to, to change policy. And, and, and we're going to California. I'm very proud to say about a month ago, um, hopefully Gavin Newsom will sign that into law soon. Just passed NDA ban, very similar to New Jersey's, which means that if you're in California, nobody can enforce an NDA on you. That's not for proprietary trade secret information. So if you're sexually harassed, for example, you can talk about it. So... What's making you salty this week, Em? I've been watching, I've been following all the Britney stuff, so I'm so glad her father is no longer her conservator, but watching, I don't know if you got to watch the new New York Times one on Hulu and then the Netflix one. I didn't. But um, all the crap that that 
amazing woman has gone through. I just I am so glad and I hope she is free soon. So I would have to say it's making me salty to learn about what happened to her and what the justice justice system that you are fighting against right now has done to constrict her and take away so many of her rights. That has made me very salty. We've talked about this before, but you and I both know full well that Brittany would never have been subjected to this if she were a guy. No, absolutely not. Plenty of guys have gone off the deep end, but I mean, I'm happy for Brittany. I'm happy that she's getting married again. I hope, you know, that she, this one lasts. I know. What about you? What are you salty about? Well, I mean, except for the vitriol that you got on Twitter over a memorial poster. I'll tell you what I'm salty about. Um, I'm salty about the fact Christy Nome, who's the Republican governor of North Dakota. Sorry, South Dakota. What am I talking about? North Dakota. She's the Republican governor of South Dakota. Um, this, this, this right-wing Trump blogosphere puts out this article. I'm going to sit here and defend her because I can't believe I'm defending her. She and I disagree on virtually everything in the world. But um, this right-wing, and let me stress again, right-wing publication writes this unsourced um, thing about her having an affair with Corey Lewandowski, right? Who has been a long time established horrible human being back to when um, he <laughs> decided to grab Michelle Fields, uh, a reporter who was covering him back in 2016. But allegedly they're having this extramarital relationship, which I really couldn't care less about, except to say that um, this article then, pre- this article, again, written by something called American Greatness. Um, which apparently is a Trump-supporting outlet, is basically saying something along the lines of, well, this kills her chances of becoming president in 2024, getting the nomination in 2024. Really? This is coming from a Trump-supporting blog? Yeah. Really? Really? Why? Because she's a woman? Because Donald Trump, a man, apparently that's just locker room talk that boys talk about grabbing women by the you-know-what and uh, cheating on your wife with a stripper and cheating on your wife with a hundred other women and, and on all three of your wives, I should say, but that's okay. But yeah. this obviously kills having an extramarital affair, which by the way is completely unsourced. And this is just a horrible rag piece. Uh, you know, I'm going to defend her here and say, there's no evidence of this whatsoever. And even if there were, if I'm, if I'm a Trump voter, why do I care? Right. I mean, you've already established you don't. You already established you don't. So, but you know why? Cause she's a woman. Because yeah. she's a woman. So here you go. I, I, a liberal Democrat, am defending Christy Nome, who speaks at CPAC and brings down the house there purely because I think she's getting completely screwed as a result of being a woman, kind of like Sarah Palin did uh, in 2008. Anyway, that was a great, great, great interview. And Em, uh, you and I have a breakfast date next week, which I'm very excited to actually see you in real life. We haven't seen each other in months and months. And have a wonderful weekend, and we will do this again much sooner than the last time we did this. True. Talk to you later.